Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, we've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. So I think food justice is really about leaning into our historical and cultural legacy as Americans and then talking about how can we make this better for everybody, right? How can we make this food system work for everybody so everybody has access and everybody has food and everybody has high-quality food You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Good morning, Mom. I have something I want to talk about today. I wanted to go back to the very beginning of Lady Farmer even before Lady Farmer, before we got the idea for it, I would say it happened somewhere between you guys moving out to the farm and there wasn't a point where I was living at the farm until we started on Lady Farmer. But before then, I would go visit and it was really fun to have you guys there and you were sort of discovering this new life and finding your community. And not far into that, you ended up getting together with a group of really cool women who were all farmers and you guys started a farmer's market in the little town. And I just remember you telling me about that on the phone. And I think that was really sort of the beginning. We were also having these conversations about sustainable fashion and sustainable agriculture and how cool it was that in our experiences, 
so much of this movement was being led by women. And then I went to a couple, when I moved to the farm, I went to a couple of meetings of, it was called the Common Ground Market. And that was just a really cool, inspiring group of people. Those were the original lady farmers. Oh, gee. Yeah. They're the ones our book is dedicated to, if you read our book. Yes. And that was, I remember you and I actually disagree on who first came up with the name Lady Farmers, but whoever it was, <laughs> that was the inspiration was that group of women that were doing the thing. And it was interesting because it was a really interesting process to watch because it was very hard yeah. to get the town on board or people to come by it and what did they do it for two or three seasons even, but it sort of didn't have the support that it needed or the infrastructure that I don't know why it didn't last. But in that experience, I certainly learned a lot and observed a lot just about how much work it is and how many things truly have to be in place for something to work well. And as a community member or someone who lives in a community who wants nice things to happen in their community, it's really like, yeah, well, you also have to participate in those things and you have to show up. It's a good lesson for me. Why don't people come to this? I mean, that wasn't the only thing, but it was so awesome while it lasted. Right. I think a big part of it too was recognizing the need for awareness and education around the issues of what we were trying to accomplish. You know, we were trying to provide local food, farm grown food to the community because our little community here actually doesn't have a grocery store. Right. So it was like, okay, we're going to bring the good food right there. And people kind of didn't get it at first. It was like, well, I'll just go to the next town and go to the supermarket. And also, if they were stopping by the farmer's market, there was a little bit of like, well, why don't you have bananas and, and things like that? I actually think that in the, gosh, six years, six, seven years since we did that, there is a lot more awareness now about mm -hmm. the importance of nurturing your local market. In fact, right now I am sitting in a coffee shop called right. Locals, which is built around this idea. The coffee shop that you're in? Yes. It's a great manifestation of all of those things that we were trying to do so many years ago. <laughs> I'm remembering too that what you just said, Em, about when you want good things to happen in your community, you need to support and engage and take part and show up. Mm -hmm. I'm just so excited about this establishment because people are showing up. It is becoming a centerpiece of the community. It is a place where people meet and talk and congregate and engage and eat and enjoy yeah. and meet their friends. And let's, I'll see you at locals. And it's just mm -hmm. the most exciting, encouraging thing after this period of COVID when things have been shutting down and people were isolated. It's just really, I feel like it's coming out the other side of that. So exciting. It ties this discussion, unplanned, I will say, ties right into our episode for today. Yeah. And we'll get to that in a minute. I just yeah. want to add by support and show up, obviously support as much as you can. I do want to emphasize just showing up because Many times the amount of support and energy or whatever you can bring to your community is just by showing up, just being there, just being yourself. It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be expensive. And I think that that's the same in general or just zooming out, making the world a better place, being more sustainable on the planet. Just show up as yourself. Be who you are because... I believe everyone was put on this planet 
with their own unique gifts and things to bring. And I think part of slow living is slowing down enough and unplugging enough from all of the external distractions that we have going on to really get in touch with ourselves and to bring ourselves fully to things. When we talk about the support that I think sometimes it can feel like throw money at this, throw money at that, take a picture of your receipt and put it on the social media so people know that you're supporting. And it can just be so much more than that and easier than that. Amen, sister. (laughs) Or should I say daughter? (laughs) So, and also support. We should talk about if you enjoy the Good Dirt podcast. Oh yeah, it's a great segue. So we have an online membership, y'all. It's called The Almanac. And if you enjoy this podcast, then you would really enjoy The Almanac because it's basically a continuation of all of these conversations and you get to connect with other Good Dirt listeners. And we have really great discussions in there every week. We post fun recipes and ideas and things to keep you tied to the season as we do slow living from the seasons together. And next week, we actually have our book club meeting on the book How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. That's been our summer read. So this will be our book club meeting about that. And I'm really excited to chat with everyone about how this book changed their lives because it certainly changed mine. And I just think it's a really important book and very timely. So join us. Yeah, especially if you want to get in on this book club session. That's next Tuesday, September 13th. Yeah, it's easy. You can just tell them how to get in the almanac, Emma. To join the almanac, you can check the links in the show notes or go to our website, ladyfarmer.com slash community, and you will find all the information there. So come on in. It's just really fun in there. And getting to know everybody has been just such a joy this year. And even though I haven't met everyone in person, I feel like I know them and in getting to know them better and better as we interact online. So this discussion is a great introduction into today's episode, which I'll call the third in a series where the focus has been on regional food as a reflection of history, culture, and as a means of building health and connection within community. And our guest today is April Jones. She's the founder of the Pinehurst Farmers Market in Columbia, South Carolina. She's originally from Akron, Ohio, and she advocates for her community as a part of the food justice and food sovereignty movement. April is passionate about community gardens and, you guessed it, farmers markets. She's also a writer, a public speaker, a blogger, a recipe developer, book reviewer, and definitely an all-around dynamo, as you will come to find, when it comes to talking about these issues. She contributes content to her blog, Frolicking Americana, and to numerous publications, including Mother Earth News, Country Lore, The Natural Farmer, The Agrarian Trust, Cornucopia Institute, and Farmers Market Coalition. April's work is in creating a resilient food system, farmers markets, and creating community change around food. We learned so much in this conversation, and we're really happy to be highlighting this important topic of food sovereignty in this season of abundance. You are in for a treat because April is so full of energy and she's hilarious and I've really enjoyed talking to her. It was really special to have her on. So please enjoy this conversation with April Jones, food justice advocate and creator of Pinehurst Farmer's Market. I'm April Jones, so I'm originally from Akron, Ohio. 
which is a wonderful, beautiful, magical place and was the start of all of my sustainability work. So I feel like this city is just, they really gave a lot to us younger generation. They really invested in, in allowing us an opportunity to explore our passions and the things that we really love and cherish. And so I'm very thankful for Akron, Ohio, for doing that for me and for my whole generation of cohorts. And I started the Pinehurst Farmer's Market because I was in a food apartheid community, which means we didn't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And this was before COVID. So before everyone had the supply chain shortages and all the issues that we've had with COVID. That's why I started the Pinehurst Farmer's Market, to give my community access to fresh, delicious, local food, and for us all to have a journey of exploration about what is in season and what tastes good in season on with our produce, and also our cultural and historical legacies as a people here in South Carolina. We have a lot of collard greens and field peas, but in Ohio, we have a lot of corn, we have a lot of potatoes. And root vegetables like rutabagas, turnips, and beets. And so we have a lot of Slavic traditions, Czech traditions, Slovenia, Slovakian, Ukrainian, a little Nordic in there, lots of German. It's like a smorgasbord of goodness. But we eat a lot of root vegetables, and that's because it was cold, and they store well, and they're historical, cultural. And so that's why I started the Pioneer's Farmer's Market. That's so cool. Did you start the Pioneer's Farmer's Market in Ohio and you brought it to South Carolina? Or is it in South Carolina? What's the timeline there? It's in South Carolina. So I currently started, I've changed the format of the market. We used to have farmers coming to my home. And then we would have a farmer's market weekly. So now I'm just directly selling to the Pinehurst Farmer's Market customers. So I just have microgreens, oh, cool. collard greens, kales, lettuce greens. I mean, I just have medley. I'm a seed-aholic, <laughs> so I have all the different types of green. And you grow all this at your house? I do. I'm a little bit of a soil snipe as well. And so I've concocted a lot of secret techniques and strategies, and now I'm finally able to bring it all together. Oh my gosh, I'd love to get into some of that. Yeah. But first, the term you used, food apartheid. Yeah. So interesting. If I've heard that term, it's been very infrequently. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that when we're thinking about words and meaning, I think it really has a high importance. And I think that we can always elevate our language and elevate the ways that we communicate with each other. And so I think apartheid is really the perfect word because we're all in this systematic system of living, right? We're in different neighborhoods, we're in different zip codes, different cities, states, et cetera, counties, and all of that impacts our life, right? And some of those choices we have control over and some of those choices we don't have control over. So I think apartheid really is the perfect word because it gives us a clear understanding of the systematic world that we live in. And so some people, right, they don't have as many resources, right? And then they have to live in neighborhoods without those resources. And it's no fault of their own. It's just 
how it is and how things are structured. But for those people, yeah, when they don't have food access and they live in a food apartheid area, that means they have lower health outcomes. So like here in South Carolina, we yeah. have really bad health outcomes overall. We had really high rates of COVID and that's directly related to your health outcomes that you have. So if you start off with really low health, bad health, horrible health, you're not eating right, you're not drinking your water, you're not taking your vitamins, you're not eating your vegetables because you don't believe in them, you're going to have bad health. <laughs> and then when COVID comes, which, you know, it's probably going to, some sort of pandemic's going to come again, you are in a bad place, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really felt affirmed about doing this food access and food sovereignty work because the science backs it up. I'm a big believer in science. And it says if you have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, then you have lower rates of COVID. That's amazing. And so cool. Describe what that looks like at the food apartheid. The food, I imagine it's similar to what we say, we mean when we say food desert, but describe what that looks like for people. What does it mean when people don't have access to food? So it means like you don't have a grocery store with fresh fruits and vegetables and milk and eggs and things that are going to bring you health and nutrition. It means you have fast foods, it means you have convenience stores, and means you have just limited access to the fresh, amazing things that are going to give you a health boost and give you good nutrition to fight for another day. And so when you don't have mm -hmm. access to those life-giving vegetables, fruits, eggs, dairy, meats, you know, it's very impactful. Would you say it's the same as a food desert? Yeah, I think, you know, it's the same thing. I think that, you know, when people think of a desert, you think of it like naturally occurring. This is just part of our life. Yeah. Some areas have things and, you know, some areas have lots of water and they're lush and green and beautiful. And there's just naturally occurring areas that are desolate and dry. Yeah. But it's not like that. I mean, food desert is such a misnomer anyways. I really appreciate that, that use of that language. I get it because apartheid, as you say, to your point, it brings attention to the systematic issues and food desert kind of points more towards geography or like that's just how it is. Yeah, or like this neighborhood is in a place that doesn't happen to be near a grocery store, but the word apartheid implies that there's a system in place that is preventing this neighborhood from having adequate access to good food. So makes sense. I had never heard that before either. So that's very interesting way to put it. I think very descriptive and helps people understand what's going on there. And so naturally, just to take it logically to the next step, if People don't have access to, let's say, real food. And the only place to go is the convenience store and the fast food. They don't have transportation maybe to a neighborhood that can take you to a grocery store. Again, to your point, you end up with real health problems across the population. Absolutely. So I want to ask you, what was your aha moment when you said, I need to start a community farmer's market for my neighborhood. Was there a moment where that dawned on you and you started doing it? And what did you do to start it? What was your first step? Yeah, so I wanted to start a farmer's market because I was at a conference and we're all talking about food issues. The thing that I found out at the event was my community, I lived in another part of town and it had a grocery store. Then that grocery store 
close. And then there was another grocery store and they said they were going to close that grocery store too. And I was just like, I don't like the idea of living in a community without a grocery store. I like grocery stores. Imagine. <laughs> and I like the apocalypse cons or whatever. I need to bake. Yeah. And I want to run to the store and pick something up. So then I moved to a new neighborhood because it had two grocery stores. And I was like, yeah, I'm set for life. And then I moved to a new neighborhood and both those grocery stores closed. And so both times we had that, there was no discussion from like city council, county council, anyone in government that these grocery stores were closing. It was just like one day they were open and the next day they're like, we are closing hmm. and we won't be open anymore. And I didn't like that. I felt very upset about it. And I said, oh, well, this is a problem and I can fix this problem and make a farmer's market. And then I won't have this issue of not having access to food. And so that is how I started the Pinehurst Farmer's Market. It was all my grocery stores were closing. Whoa. Well, you say yeah. you had it from your house. So did you invite other farmers or people growing things to bring things? Yeah. Did you know farmers? Like, how did that kind of connect in your head? I did. I had farmer friends, girl. Okay. I was like, okay. yes, you- farmer friends. Let's do this. I called them up and I was like, this is what we're going to do. And they're like, we're down. Great. That's so smart. And then you started growing some of your own things. Yes. Okay. So then I had the farmers. But then I was like, sometimes the farmers couldn't make it. Mm -hmm. They're busy, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. I know this merry-go-round. I'm (laughs) I'm not going to be caught out. I'm going to grow my own vegetables. That's awesome. Yeah. So kind of in line with what we were talking about, food apartheid and this problem with access to food, how then do you like to think about food justice and food sovereignty? What do those things mean to you? I love those things. Those are like my things that make my heart very happy. I think we're all looking for a more just and fair and equitable and safe community, state, country. And so I love the word justice. I think that Mm -hmm. that really is formative to what we are as a people. And I think it's really leaning into our highest ideals, right? We're in a country where we're going to be treated fairly. We're going to have to process. There's going to be a system that's fair and just for everyone. And I think even if we're not always making our obligations on that. It's an ideal that can bring us together. And it's a higher ideal outside of ourselves that can make us a stronger, better, more amazing city, state, and country. Um, So I think food justice is really about leaning into our historical and cultural legacy as Americans, and then talking about how can we make this better for everybody. Right? How can we make this food system work for everybody so everybody has access and everybody has food and everybody has high quality food? Like, look, we are so blessed in our country, right? We're so highly, highly blessed to have amazing people who are doing amazing work and more passionate. And we're blessed with our land, so much land in our country, right? And That's just such a blessing. And that's something that we can treasure and utilize and access to make our country better and stronger and more resilient. 
And I think mm. when we think about the COVID, having land access and having the opportunity to grow your own produce and your own strawberries is so awesome, right? And we have community gardens and we have yeah. vacant land in the city. There's just a lot of access. So food justice work is exciting and fun. I mean, yeah, there is nothing like the COVID pandemic to wake people up to the importance of food sovereignty, like you're talking about, which just the ability to have sovereignty over how you're getting your food. Because I think for some people before the pandemic, it was hard to imagine how at the mercy of huge corporations and huge complex industrial systems we were for our food, the thing that we need every day, three times a day. Which is crazy. Yeah, it's like I think people's eyes were really opened when they went into the store and the shelves were empty because the truck didn't arrive for whatever reason. Or the meat counters were empty because there was a lot of illness in, in the factory. So there's so many factors between the source of the food and our plates in a system like that, there's so many places for it to go wrong. So I'm assuming what you mean by food sovereignty is when you have the decision-making and the power-making because you know where it comes from and you know how to get it. And you don't have to worry about those things like someone a thousand miles away not being able to do their job and therefore get the food to you. I would like to take this a little bit further. And other than the food sovereignty, the food justice, how can these neighborhood farmers markets like Pinehurst Farmers Market make a difference in our communities in addition to the, the food access? And how has it made a difference in your community specifically? I think that the farmers market really has allowed us to come together and communicate. I was in Missouri, Mansfield, Missouri with Baker Creek Feed Company. They had their spring festival. Oh, yeah. And I was talking about food systems and I had to give them honor and respect that because their food game there was on point. I was like raptured back to my childhood at my grandmother's table eating. It was so amazing and so, 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 so good. Oh, you mean like the food at the conference? Well, yeah, they have a restaurant there. So that's really good too. And then I went to like restaurants in town and I went to Branson, Missouri. Oh, in Missouri. Okay. Okay. I say that because when we had, I'd said at the talk that Farmers markets and just working in sustainability and bartering all really allow us to increase our communication skills because we all have to do that, especially after COVID. Mm. And so these spaces are normally very safe spaces, right? Um, you feel like you know, people that are coming are like-minded, right? Mm. They're normally very peaceable. And that it allows us to communicate with each other and say, hey, How's it going? How's the dog? How's your grandchildren? How's the new pool? How's the new house? I heard you put on a new furnace. Do you like it? You know, those kind of conversations, which are so vital, right? And so important. And we all have to work on our communication skills. It helps us to negotiate and to strategize. Like, I want, there's only so many strawberries. Maybe I need to get there early. So therefore, I can get my strawberries, et cetera. And it just allows us to share recipes. And, you know, I use strawberries, I make a jam, or I use strawberries in my smoothie, or I make strawberry pancake. And so just thinking about ways we can utilize these crops that we are buying at the farmer's market. So communication, I think, is key. I also think we need safe places in our country to not talk about, oh, I'm a Republican, or I'm a 
Democrat or yeah. a libertarian. It's a super safe space. Yeah, I'm just here to have stra- get strawberries. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Everyone needs and just talk about exactly. And yeah, we have to talk about these huge issues that are sometimes overwhelming us in our country. We can talk about strawberries, right? Yeah, yeah, and have nice conversations. So I like that. Yeah, food is something that all humans have in common. And from yeah. the very beginning, we all need food, and it just really, as you say gives us something to talk about together, something we all can agree on. Yes. Can everybody agree on good food? Exactly. <laughs> if not, we're totally lost. <laughs> yeah. Something else I'd like to say about farmer's markets is, especially since COVID and during COVID, I think people have really leveled up their understanding of the importance of farmer's markets and local farmers and people doing things, people exercising sustainable farming practices and growing real food because it is a place to go and be in community. And it is a place where you can talk to the person who grows your food, which is a real privilege and really important. And it's not only to support them because you think, well, they're doing this thing that's hard. It's hard to make a living. So I'm going to pay a little extra for these strawberries because I want to support this person. I think people are beginning to understand that maybe they're willing to pay a little extra for those strawberries because they're better for their health and they're better for the land and better for the planet. And it's just a mutually good thing. So it's not just people being nice to support the farmers. It's people taking a real interest in something that's just all around better. So that's another purpose of the farmer's markets, I think. Absolutely. I think as a country, we all are Americans, but we all have so many different ways of living, right? And of being and of moving in the world. And I think sometimes we shy away from those differences. We're like, no, we're just all Americans. We're all just getting along. But I think that farmer's markets are a way for us to all lean into our cultural legacies and our historical ways of doing things. So when I was in Missouri, every meal I ate, you know how you think about how a meal is supposed to taste and be presented and all those sort of things, smell, et cetera. Everything I ate was like, yeah, that's right. That's how it's supposed to taste, right? That's how it's supposed to, to smell. So my host, Kathy, was so kind and she works for Baker, Big Seed, and she made this most amazing casserole. And she put potatoes in the casserole, which most people would be like, oh, my God, there's potatoes in the casserole. And I was like, yes, potatoes. I love you. Because the Midwest, we like eat so many potatoes. I had potatoes probably for dinner most nights. So I can like sneak in a potato. I'm like, oh, this is love. This lady loves me. She snuck in a potato. So, I mean, like being in those spaces and being culturally familiar and having like, a long cultural relationship with the potato really <laughs> does help and farmers markets can do that here in the south they do the field peas and the collard greens and people sell fat back and they render down lard I mean there's all sorts of different things and then in Ohio we do the rutabagas and the turnips and the sauerkrauts and pickled beets and we also do field peas. And so there's just that dichotomy, right? We both have field peas, but maybe we prepare them in a different way. We both have turnips, but then maybe one area, they're like, 
really into those turnips, right? Leaning into that crop. And so I like farmers markets because they always tell you a lot about what's been going on culturally, right? What's been going on historically in yeah. regions of the country. It really is such a story. Like you can walk through and and then if you if you go consistently season to season and year to year and you yes. see people a few years later, then they'll have their kids with them and their kids get older. <laughs> it's really yes. cool. Yeah. And we recently in our farmer's market started, like there's more seafood coming now, you know, in Virginia. Well, I'm in DC, but in Virginia, we have the Rappahannock River. They've got oysters. There's this oyster person that comes now. And I forget that I'm that close to oysters, you know, <laughs> but then every Sunday yeah. I go to the market, I'm like, oh yeah, oysters. And then one week they're not there anymore. I'm like, oh, I should have gotten oysters while they were here, but they're not here anymore. <laughs> it's not oyster season. <laughs> right. It seems so simple, but it, as you just told the story with the potatoes, there's so much joy to be found there that is really special. And you can't just get that anywhere. Yeah. It's just so simple. It's unique. It's unique to, to place. April, tell us what's going on at the Pinehurst Farmer's Market these days and who might show up. And you've told us the kind of food, but just sort of describe farmer's market day at Pinehurst and is it once a week now or what's happening there? So now I've changed it to more of a mobile option because I have things in my personal life that I've taken away my time so I don't have the time and the resources to get to a weekly large market with farmers. Um, So people can come to my house, they send me a text, hey I want some greens, da 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 da, or I want this certain type of greens. And then they can swing by and I give it to them and then they go on their way. So it's just a really easy, quick transaction um, that makes it nice for everybody. And it helps me to still give people opportunities for food access, but it also allocates time for them to do it when they have time. Yeah, that's great. Like, oh, I missed the market or I missed the day and the time. And it makes it very easy. But now I'm doing a lot of work with consulting and speaking engagements. And so I'm doing a lot of work across the country, which I really am enjoying. Yeah, that's so exciting. And that's so fun that you get to have that, that you figured out a way to make it work for you to where you can keep doing your work in the way that, yeah, makes it work for you. That's a real interesting model. And maybe some of our listeners are, you know, their wheels are turning in their head that, you know, somebody... Somebody could do something like that. Somebody that has a big garden and they can't organize a farmer's market right now, but they can, you know, put out there on their Facebook page or the town listserv or whatever and say, hey, I've got a bunch of greens or potatoes or whatever, and people could come by and get it. That's another way to do it. There's no rules about how it has to look. It's just all about helping people get good food. Exactly. So let's chat a little bit about, you said at the very beginning, you're kind of a soil nerd and you're really excited about the soil. And this podcast is called The Good Dirt. So we love soil too. So give us the dirt on the good dirt. I have my house in Columbia and man, it was bad, bad dirt. There's like, I don't know, it's like sand. I don't even know what it is. It was unbelievable. It was so compacted. You couldn't put any, plant anything into the soil. It was just so compacted. And so I was like, how do I solve this? What is the solution, Lord? Help me. It was just like the worst. So first thing I did was I did garden beds on the side of the property. So I was like, this is a good way to kind of test out what's going on here and put in new soil and amend it and then learn some growing practices in this new area. And then I was like, I'm going to mulch. Because we had flooding issues and we still have flooding issues. 
So I put mulch in the front yard to mitigate the flooding issues. And I tell you, my neighbors, it rained really hard. Our street is like a flowing river anytime it rains. And people's yards are totally soaked and the water just pools on the top. And so the mulch was a great way to mitigate that. And it also helps with shifting up homes because we don't have foundations here, which is like in Ohio, we have foundations, like no joke, they go down really really deep into the ground. It's basically like a whole nother floor of the house. And so here, my house is on cinder blocks. And a lot of houses in South Carolina are on cinder blocks. And so that's something you know when you're buying your house. Is your house on cinder blocks or is it not on cinder blocks? And most of them are. And so my house was built in the 1930s. And the cinder blocks they used didn't look like that high quality. And they didn't really put that many. So therefore, any little shift makes a huge difference in my little small house at 600 square feet. So that was another issue. Why I had to really dig into the soil because I was like, my house may wash away. (laughs) (laughs) That's exciting. So how long did it take for you to see a real difference in the soil after you did the mulch? And did you do anything else or was it mainly the mulch method? Yeah, it was mostly the mulching method. And it took about two years. I did the mulch and then I put dirt on top. But it really wasn't quite as effective as it is now because now it's kind of breaking down. And so it kind of just does its thing. Like the little worms come and the little insects come and then the birds come because of the insects and they're pooping. So that's good for the soil. And it's just like a little cycle. (laughs) I'm wondering, back to the food apartheid and food justice conversation. When you are traveling around the country and talking to people, I imagine, I guess, the people that you're talking to about this, you are meeting them in a space where you have this shared interest. But what would you say about like, I imagine you do this, you know, driving through these towns in rural, you know, South Carolina. I mean, we have them all around us all over the country where you drive through and you're like, wow, there's no, I haven't seen a grocery store. I only see fast food. These houses look run down the people here how do they live what would you say to these communities who might not even know what they're missing or if you just plop a farmer's market or you say like you should be eating healthy food but it's really not a part of the culture what do you say about that disconnect do you think that communities need to relearn how to appreciate real food i wonder that about that with small towns and I know it's one thing for us to say, we know you shouldn't eat McDonald's all the time, but also maybe some people want to eat McDonald's all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest thing that I would say as I'm traveling through the country and been going a lot of different places is that there's some places where the resources mm-hmm. that the government gets, right? Whatever resources that may be, mm-hmm. they go to the people, right? They say, oh, we have this $10 million for the roads, right? And they spend that $10 million on the road, right? When you drive through that community, you're like, oh my gosh, you have really beautiful roads, right? And so when you drive through those communities, it's indicative of what you're going to see. Those people have, Mm -hmm. they have more pride, right? They have Mm -hmm. more sense of self, right? Mm -hmm. And they say, hey, I'm valuable, right? Because my community is spending the resources they have. And they're doing the best that they can Mm -hmm. to help, right? Whether it's just putting in the road so people can drive safely Mm -hmm. from their work to their home or to wherever they may go for church or to pick up their child from daycare. So yeah, so they like, so then they feel good about themselves, right? They feel confident. They feel like I can 
make it in life because I can have good growth. And then they make better decisions later on. And then when you have communities that aren't allocated mm-hmm. those resources that they're given appropriately, then you see, oh, the road's really bad, right? Then you're going to see maybe a disinvestment mm-hmm. in the school system, right? Because they're not allocating those resources. And then, you know, on and on it goes. And so when you're in those communities, it's really a harder uphill battle because there are resources available. They're not being properly allocated. And so then you, as like an organizer or a person in the community, has to Mm -hmm. find funds or find community support to do things that the government or that community should already be covering. Yeah. And it's also like, you should eat vegetables. And they're like, well, our schools are really shitty. (laughs) It's like, I don't know. And it's unfortunate, but I feel like, and mom, earlier in the conversation, you said, it's such a privilege to know who grows your food. And yes, it is. But like, why is it a, like, why does that have to be a privilege? Why is the healthy food and the food access seemingly farther away on the hierarchy when it really is the most basic need, right? For some reason, because we have the fast food or because we have the convenience stores, we don't think of the food as a priority, as a priority sometimes. Along those lines, April, how do you impart to people that might be in a community where that might be in a food apartheid, and this is speaking to what Emma said a few minutes ago, and they're unaware of the situation or how things could be better for them and how it's affecting them? Do you educate people on this or is that part of your mission at the moment? What we're talking about is just like being aware, right? Being aware of like what's going on. So like in South Carolina, we usually pack roads, right? And when I had the material, I was like, oh, little roads are so beautiful, right? They're like so smooth and like very few potholes, et cetera, et cetera. Such good maintenance. And so I think it's just allowing people to be aware of what's going Mm -hmm. on, right? What is in my community? Do I have access to a grocery store? Is there a community garden that I can use? Do I have land that I can utilize to grow myself? What is my school system like? Maybe we need to increase our education outcomes, right? And make sure our kids are really being educated in a safe environment. And maybe we should encourage more healthier things in our cafeterias, right? In our local communities. I'm all about we can all make a difference in our communities, right? And we can make really great changes. But I also think that if you are working in this space and you're not able to really move forward because, you know, there could be corruption in your state government or there could be not allocating resources properly, I encourage people if they feel so led to move to other communities where those values are more aligned, right? where there's more truth and integrity and honesty in your society. And I think we really have to all try to get to more civil places, right? There needs to be a higher level of civility in our Mm -hmm. country. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be about, that's not a political Mm -hmm. issue, right? I'm not saying, oh, these people are not civil and that's why we're here. I mean, we're all part of the discord, (laughs) but we all have to rise above, Mm -hmm. right? And start really working on our social skills and being more civil. And some communities in our country really aren't, we have low levels of civility. And some parts of our country have high level 
of civility. And if you feel like you want to be in a high level of civility place, I encourage you to move there. And by civility, do you mean like level of involvement and awareness and care people have for the community? Absolutely. And I think values, right? And principles. Some places of our country are very ruly and lawless (laughs) and wild. And there are other parts of our country that are principled, right? I'm not going to sell you out, Mm -hmm. friend, for like $20, right? I'm not going to sell you out because I may need you later on. Mm -hmm. You're part of my community. And like the $20 would be nice today, but two weeks down the road, I may need Mm -hmm. another $20, right? And so having the idea of being principled and saying, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sell out my neighbor. I'm going to show solidarity and kindness with my neighbor. That's really important. So mm-hmm. the more ways that we can be yeah. kinder, gentler, more honest, forthright, and principled, the better our country can be. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you know, people in the 50s, like, that's so interesting. In the 50s, they totally get it. They're like, yes, principles. Yes, honesty, integrity. That's all they know. But the rest of us have to try to rise to that occasion. So, April, what do you find are some of the biggest challenges in this journey you're on of raising food awareness and fighting for food justice and food sovereignty and raising the level of communication and civility in the communities? What do you run up against? I think that what I've I've learned, I think, through this process of like food sovereignty and food justice is to really think deeply about my own cultural values, right? My own principles and how I see the world and what I want for the world. I'm a mother. I want a better world for my son and the things that are really important to me as a parent. And so I do think that for me and this work, it's really allowed me, it's been reflective. And I think that's really key about sustainability and food movement is that it's really, ref- when you really dig down into it, it's reflective of you as a person, right? Reflective of your cultural values, the way you cook things, the crops you use, how you use them, and your memories, right? Your family memories, you know, maybe your church memories, your community memories, all of that is wrapped up in food and it teaches us so much about ourselves and about our communities and so i really love that reflective work and it is challenging but i think that i like a challenge and i enjoy a challenge and it's given me an opportunity to see the landscape of our country right and the ways that we do things how we do things and how important that is and it lets me see how different value systems, right? Like we talked about like the apartheid and how that's systematic. But there's also a huge range of value systems that we have in our country. And it depends greatly on where you live, right? And so it's really allowed me to tap into that. Like what are the values of this place? What are the values of these people? Mm-hmm. And then how does that directly relate to the food system? And it always does. When people are into shenanigans and stealing and not being principled, you see higher rates of poverty, 
you see poor school systems, you see lots of, you know, food apartheid, and just like a really hard life for people, right? A really hard struggle that is put on them because of the place that they're in, right? And then you go to other parts of the country and you see the people are more principled and you see that they have longer lives, they have better outcomes, they eat better food because they have a better educational system. So they understand the science of like, if I drink five Cokes in a day, I'm going to feel really bad. And wait, is there sugar in that Coke? And then be able to like tie in the science and then they're feeling in their body about the sugar maybe doing me in. Maybe I shouldn't do five Cokes in a day. But if you don't have the education to understand that there is sugar in Coke and the effects of sugar, it's really a harder time in life and it's a harder struggle. And so I think that that's definitely very challenging. But I feel the beauty of our country that there's a lot of amazing people doing amazing work. Like I love Missouri. I love just all I love it. Yeah. Did you like just the background? Sorry. I love Ohio. My dad's family is from New Orleans. And I okay. love it there. Oh, they have a fabulous food movement doing amazing things in urban ag. And I have a new partnership with Dillard University, which is the HBCU. And we're going to work on climate and farming, which is, you know, really interesting topics. So I'm excited about that. And when I was in New Orleans, I loved it. I love the people, I love the culture, and they have a really high level of civility. They're really good with using their words as a teacher. Today. <laughs> we have lived in New Orleans. We have family history in New Orleans as well. But yes, the food is very good. Yes. We lived there for oh, three years. Magical. It is. Yeah, we fell in love with the food big time. It's really something. Talk about culture. There's like four or five cultures all, all coming together there. It's fascinating. Yeah. The history. It's like living in Europe, right. actually. A lot of influences there, but you just seem like such a positive and joy-filled person. And you're traveling a lot, as I can see from your storytelling and sort of where you're coming from and the work that you're doing. I wonder, do you think we can get everyone eating good food and like really, do you think we could do it? I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm an eternal optimist. I was listening to Angus King and he's an independent, so he's nonpartisan. And he's from Maine, okay. senator, and he caucuses with the Democrats. And so Ari Shapiro of NPR was talking to him. I mean, they were talking about legislation that Angus King is for. And we're not going to get into that. But I love what he said. He said he's an eternal optimist, and I agree with him. And he said he's hopeful for our country, and I am hopeful for our country. And I think that we really have amazing people, right? We are very, very, very blessed. Really good hearts. And sometimes it can seem overwhelming because there's like a lot going on. But in our communities, we have community power. We have the opportunity to rise above, right? In our small communities, whether you're in a small town, it could be your neighborhood, it could be your street. I mean, you can make your community as small or as large as you want it to be. And so we all have an opportunity to create the community that we are hoping for and we are looking for. And so I'm always hopeful for our country in general. I mean, I do think that we have some pockets of our country that are lawless and wild. I'm not sure about those pockets, but I think we all have to dig into our principles, right? Our good principles, not bad principles. 
our good principles mm-hmm. of honesty and integrity and building a legacy, not only for ourselves, but building a legacy for our future. And when I was in the Midwest, I saw a really great amount of people leaning into that, right? Leaning into their cultural legacy, honoring it and saying, I'm going to do better, right? Somebody gave this city to me and I'm going to do better, right? And working, leaning in, working and doing the good work. And so I'm really excited about places like, you know, regions like Louisiana. I love that area. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the ways of doing things. And I love that they can communicate. And the more we can communicate and increase our level of civility, the better. When I was in Missouri, people were so civil. They were just the most civil people. And like no one was offensive. They totally honored you as a person. And having like your rights and your own mind about how you were doing things. And they would say small, subtle, non-offensive things, which I love. They were so subtle and so sweet. You know, Ohio, like, we're not like that. Like, we're a little more cutthroat about telling you what to do. Like, we will tell you what to do and when to do it. And like, your friends will do it. Your mother will do it. Your aunts will do it. I mean, your church members, I mean, like everybody does it. And it keeps us on the straight and narrow, so I don't mind it. But in Missouri, they were more subtle. And then in New Orleans, mm-hmm. they told you this story about how to right? <laughs> They're like, one day mm-hmm. this happened to me. And they, you know, they go into it. But I really made the right decision by X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But they never say, this is what you need to do. But you're supposed to listen and figure it out. And I love that April, you need a TV show, like a travel TV show. Has anyone ever told you that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, April, what does slow living mean to you? And how, how are you able to embrace slow living into your current life with all this going on? Yeah, I'm really into being frugal. I think that's my Midwest way. So, slow living sounds like saving money, which I'm totally down for. Cool. Oh. And I think, you know, like living a slower paced life is helpful. It helps you to be reflective and to calm down and to think about like, do I really need this item or can I make it myself or can I like barter or can I borrow from a friend? So at my talk at Baker Mm -hmm. Creek Seed Company, we had a call and response section of the talk and he's like, you know, bartering is where it's at and like, that's a great way to combat inflation and I was like yes tell it you know like I went to my black church moment <laughs> which was like a little awkward but like he was for it and I totally was for it and I wanted to give him extra enthusiasm for that because I was like that's so true I don't have to buy every single thing that I can borrow I can Say, if you give me this, I'll give you that. And then it helps me with my negotiation skills it's to be like, I hope I'm getting a good back to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, it's a way for us to build community where I'm fishing. Like people in Missouri, mm-hmm. they have beautiful, clean water. And so they fish. I would mm-hmm. not fish where I am currently. But there I would totally fish and they fish all the time. And he says sometimes he catches 20 fish. And then he gives them away to his Amish neighbor, right? And then sometimes he only catches five or ten and just keeps those for himself. And so, and vice versa. He said his friend can catch like Mm. 50 fish. And then he's able to share with his friend 
you know, the guy he's fishing with or other people in the community. And so I love that idea of being able to like live off the land and take your time and be able to share the resources with others. I think that's important. We don't have to always be so money driven. Yeah, I've never made that direct connection with slow living and frugality, but that makes so much sense. I know you're the first person to ever say that. Yeah. After two years, but it's, a, it's, it's perfect. It's a Midwest thing. They train it early. Yeah, save money, yeah. Carol, save money. <laughs> tell you how to do it. <laughs> About the barter thing, it's so funny because, you know, we live in a rural community and there's a chain store where they have all the stuff, all the tools and everything you need to do your big garden and, and grow your crops and all of this. So everybody buys all of these things. And I'm always thinking like, wow, why can't we just have almost like a community tool shed? And you go check it out and you use that rig for the day and then you bring it back. And there's several of them, but not everybody's yeah. be using that on the same day. So anyway, other yeah, barter, but there is more of a barter system out here. There are trades going on. And I've had that thought about lawnmowers. Yeah. Especially because you only mow your lawn literally once in a while. And yeah. Does every single person need a lawnmower? Exactly. No. I hate my lawnmower. <laughs> so, April, what does the good dirt mean to you, literally or metaphorically? Well, I think the good dirt, what I've learned about growing is that you have to build a foundation. And so you have to have a good foundation. And I tell my son that all the time. You have to have a good foundation. It's very important. It's also biblical. And so I think that's really important to think about when you're doing anything in sustainability. You have to think about your foundational principles and think about the foundational principles of your community and your society. And I think when we think about our country, you know, we have parts of our country that have a really sad legacy. So we all have it because we're all in this together. And so we have to honor that and to make amends for that and to have a reckoning with that and then build upon the new principles that we want to have in our society. Back to Missouri, when I was there, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder, she's from mm -hmm. Missouri, but she's also from Wisconsin. And so we love Little House in Missouri. Oh, yeah. I love her so much. And so when I was there, they're like, this is where Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm here. Like, it was so amazing. And the people have the same value system that I read about in Little House on the Prairie. Like where Pa was going down the road to help his neighbor. And then Ma would have a neighbor really, really far to help her with things. And they work with the native people to grow crops and exchange buckskins and like all that kind of stuff. And so they're still building on that foundational piece of being civil uh -huh. and being kind and bartering and sharing and having that communal spirit, right? I'm not going to sell you out because I'm going to have to see you later, right? And building on those yeah. principles of integrity and honesty. And yeah. so I can see it in their community and their culture and in the food system and how they operate their businesses and how they operate in their community with their food systems. And so I'm really excited about that foundational work. And I think that's really important to have a firm foundation and then build from there and making sure that we're principled and we're working on our civility. And if your area is not aligned with your principles of integrity and honesty and you can't make change, then you need to move to places that do have those principles and value those principles and build from there. Because you're going to build it with some like-minded people. 
Mm, that's so true. The good dirt, yes. good foundation. The good dirt. Yes. This has been such a joy chatting with you. Is there anything else that you want to say while you have the mic or you want to leave the audience with what you do or and definitely tell us, you know, where we can find you and read more and watch your talks. And if people are listening, they want to know what April's up to. Yeah. So I freelance write. I have a new post for Agarian Trust out of Virginia. So I write a couple times a month for them. So I have a new article about Juneteenth. Okay. You can check that out on the Gary and Trust, their website. I also consult. So if you'd like me to come to your nonprofit, to your farm, to your farmer's market, I'm happy to consult with you. I'm also a speaker. So I'll be speaking at the Native Indigenous Conference in Minnesota. Hello, Midwest. I've never been to Minnesota. I'm so excited. So cool. Okay, I'm really excited about that. And you can find me on Instagram, Pinehurst Farmers Market. And I also want to say one more thing about Pa or Ingus Wilder. I mean, they did have sometimes a positive relationship with the Native people, but they also had sometimes a really negative experiences, right? And there was a lot of land theft. So I don't want to brush over that. It's historical, it's factual. And I think that we have to definitely tell our stories in a truthful way. So I want to make sure they add that as well. But they also had positive experiences, right? And so that's indicative of the American experience. We've all had positive experiences and then some really negative experiences. So we really have to come together to overcome those negative experiences and honor what happened and amend and to esteem and see ways that we can value more in the future for people who have suffered. There's a lot of people in America. Yeah. Yes. Well said. So well said. Well, April, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. It's so inspiring. Yeah. I'm so glad to meet you. You're so fun. If you're ever in DC, hit us up. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, April. It was so nice meeting you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the good dirt. Goodbye.